So my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of uh, bringing the word to you this morning. So the kids will be in here this morning as well, as it's Communion Sunday, and we'll share that in a little while towards the end of service. So I hope you're preparing your hearts for that. So we've made it. We've made it to another Christmas season. Seems like we just blinked our eyes, and here it is. The older I get, that's at least what it seems like. And, And as we celebrate Advent, as Brent mentioned, we... We are looking back to when Christ came. There was a bunch of prophecy and a bunch of, a bunch of things that said, you know, there's one coming that is going to be the Savior. And, that's, and we look back at that and we go, okay, we see, we know from Scripture that story, that truth that happened. Um, but it wasn't always that way. There was a time before the Bible was completed in the time at the very beginning where it was like, We don't have all the information. We don't have the completed Bible. And so they were waiting and awaiting the first advent. And we can can also know what it's like to wait because we're awaiting the second advent. So we have that in common. We just have a lot more information now and information in the form of promises, which is a good word to remember. So we also need to remember that in a second advent, when Jesus comes, the day of salvation, as we know it, ends. Because when he returns, there's going to be no more time for repentance. There will be no more time for that as he comes to judge. So this should give us a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency for those to know mercy and grace of God. So it should give us a sense of urgency to have us tell those who don't know the mercy and grace of God, because he is coming back. So what should be on the forefront of our mind this morning is God was urgent to save us. Therefore, we should be urgent to share that message. So it's no secret that our world's becoming more and more hostile. We see that. You turn on the news, and that's just there. It's becoming more hostile to even the idea of Christianity where we can't even say Merry Christmas anymore because it might offend somebody. And you've probably experienced, though, even in this time of, of hostility in, in the world we live in today, you've probably experienced during the month of December talking about Jesus or talking about Christmas is at least a little bit easier. It almost becomes a little bit more acceptable because, well, it's Christmas time and it's, it's all over. So for the most part, I would say that we feel a little more comfortable this time of year sharing about Jesus. We feel a little more comfortable putting up our decorations that say Merry Christmas. We send out Christmas cards that mention Jesus. We send and we put up our manger scenes in our homes and we know that our neighbors and our friends and family, some of them who aren't believers, are probably going to see them. But we still do it. This is what I mean by this time of year, it just seems a little bit easier The environment kind of makes it a little bit easier. But when we put away those decorations, as we all do, come, well, some of you are really on it, like December 26th, that's like heresy. No, I go way, just kidding. I go way beyond that. I love the Christmas time, but we put them away sometime after New Year's, and and they go in the attic or in in the closet or wherever we keep them, and we get them out again next year. So the theme... This year, of the big banner behind me is Unboxing Jesus, because what I want to try to encourage us with is that we don't put away Jesus, we don't put away this hope that's a little bit easier to talk about this time of year, we don't put that away with the decorations and just wait until the day after Thanksgiving to get it back out, because 
the hope and love and peace and joy that Christ brings, the world needs year-round. The dying world needs to hear what Jesus has done. There's no question the world's full of evil, full of pain, full kind, all kinds of atrocities. I don't know about you, but when I, when I sit and I, and I look at the, the news on my computer screen or, or hear a story and I just, I just my heart aches. It's like, yo, man, the amount, the amount of evil that humanity is able to accomplish is just, it blows my mind. And I just sit there and I go, why? I don't know if you ever think that, why? Why is this happening? And my heart breaks for it. The world's so messed up. It's just plain evil at times. And if you're like me, sometimes you just hang your head and you go, how long, God? How long? Why, God? Why, when are you going to do something about this? But let me remind you, church, all of the bad and all of the evil that we see today can be traced right back to one particular point in history. The very first book in our Bibles, Genesis, otherwise known as the book of beginnings, tells us how God created the world and how, in fact, he did do something about it. Because Genesis, the very opening pages, tells of God creating the world. He spoke everything into being. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, everything from land, water, uh, the, the, the stars, the sun, people, plants, nature, everything he made within those six days. And it was good. And he made it. At the end of it all, it was very good. That was his culminating work. Everything at the very end, it was very good. What God had done was very good. Chapter 1 of Genesis sort of gives us the overview of God's creation, what he did. And then chapter 2 sort of dives into the, the sixth day. It's the creation of man, and it gives us a little bit more information. And after that, it was very good. But then we get to chapter 3. And oh, chapter 3 changes a lot of things, and it goes really, really badly. And you know the account of Adam and Eve. They were created to be in fellowship and in daily communion with God. They were in a perfect garden, in a perfect setting. It couldn't be any better. But then Satan, through a serpent, enters the picture. And Adam and Eve give in to temptation, and they choose to obey Satan rather than God. And that's where it takes a turn for the worse. It's at this point in the story I want to pick it up and read in Genesis. Normally I mark my Bible of where I'm going to be, but I thought it'd be close enough to the beginning I could find this one easy. So Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to pull them out and, and look, follow along. And we're going to pick up the story that I kind of just explained in, in chapter 3, verse 8, and we'll read through verse 19. And we're certainly not going to cover every one of these verses this morning but moreover, I want to give you sort of a context of where we'll be. So this is where they've sinned, and now God comes looking, so to speak. Chapter 3, verse 8, be reading from the ESV. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, hit, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? 
Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you of all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to, you shall not, or which I commanded you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us, that we would understand what is here within the first pages. Lord, that we'd understand uh, your character a little bit more, that you are a God who saves and you are a God of hope. So prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord, to hear this this morning and speak through me, Holy Spirit, and I pray um, that you would be the teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it may seem like a little weird place to start. We're in Advent. You're thinking, what about like Luke 2, what we hear in Charlie Brown Christmas? That's where we should be. It's Christmas time after all. But what I want you to see is that the greatest gift ever given and ever promised is in the first pages of Scripture. Even in the most devastating scene in human history, the fall, where sin enters the world, God seeks his own. We started reading in verse 8 this morning. I'm not really going to go into depth between 8 and 13, other than to say I just want to point out what God's pursuit already looks like here. This is the love of God that we see, and we miss it if we read over this familiar text too quickly. So notice what God says in verse 9. He called to the man and said, where are you? Now that might seem a little odd. Like, God's really good at hide and seek. You really can't hide from him. So it's not really a physical, where are you? It's the father seeking out his son. God certainly knows everything. He didn't need to ask Adam where he was. It's more of a father seeking out his son to get him to recognize his wrongdoing. It's a question that does not need the most obvious answer. He's asking it so he can get Adam to realize what has changed, what has done. It kind of reminds me, there was a time when my daughter was two years old and in the house we were living in at a kitchen island and we just made some cookies and she didn't know I was watching, nor does she know I'm going to share this this morning, but I'm around the corner by the staircase and her, she's just barely tall enough to see over the island and she sees those cookies up there and what do I see? The hand goes up, grabs a cookie, and I'm just watching at this point thinking, oh, the sin is evident. And, and, and she's starting to eat this cookie, and she eats it all, and then I come around the corner, and I say, what are you doing? Nothing. 
chocolate all over her face, all over her hands, guilty as can be. Did I know what she was doing? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? Obviously, she's eating a cookie. She still loves cookies. She's eating a cookie, you know, but I'm more asking her, like, this is the wrong you have done because she knew she'd been caught. She knew it was wrong, even at two years old. I didn't need to ask the question to actually figure out what she was doing. And I think that's what God is doing here. Where are you? Because it's not really a physical presence. If we read it that way, we kind of miss the point, I think. Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden, yes, but where are you now in relationship to me? Where are you now spiritually? Where are you now as a result of what you've done? Adam was not physically lost, knew where he was at, but he was certainly now spiritually lost. And the father is calling out in a tone here that's really not a mean father who's interrogating a son, but more of a deeply concerned father who's in anguish. God already knows sin has been committed. God already knows that Adam and Eve are spiritually lost. It's really the same model that God uses to seek his own today. He comes with care. He comes to people personally, and he comes to them with truth. And he asks the questions so they have to answer and realize what they've done, where they're at in life, spiritually. I just want you to see what God does before doing anything about the curse. We read, we know this passage is like the curse, but there's nothing about the curse mentioned yet. He pursues them. Where are you? Now, it would have been completely right for God just to kill them on the spot. He could have done that. In fact, that's implied in Genesis 2.17 when it says, you know what, if you eat of this, you're going to die. But no, the very fact that Adam and Eve are living still points already to the grace of God. But it doesn't make God a liar because death did start there. You know, it's, I've said this before, and it's kind of a profound thing to think it this way, but the most sad words or the saddest words in Scripture are, and he died right after Adam's name. So Adam and Eve sin, God's grace is the first thing that's on display. Not a harsh, interrogating, judgmental father who doesn't care. And I would say that the world needs to know who this God is, and there should be an urgency in our hearts to make this true God known who offers this grace even in the midst of sin. Now, I know you all remember Romans 5 because we just went through it a month ago or so, but at the end of that, we have this glorious truth where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We see God's grace here for sure. But as you know, church, God just can't overlook sin. He can't just ignore it. A righteous, holy God just can't turn away and ignore it. It has to be dealt with. It has to be confronted. It has to be paid for. But clearly, Adam and Eve are in no place and had no way of dealing with this. They were afraid and hiding behind a tree. There was no way to deal with it. Sin equals being afraid. Now, because it says they were, what? Afraid. This is what sin does. It causes us to run from God. They'd never been afraid of God before. This was new. They were in an unspoiled relationship before. Now they don't want to listen to his word, so they run and try to hide. But God pursued. God pursued. So after questioning them, and they 
gloriously played the blame game. Well, the woman, you gave me, God. So it's like, it's the woman's fault and you did it, God. So that's, that's, not, my, that's you know, not my fault. It's not my fault. And, and, and the woman's like, well, the serpent, you know, the fingers are pointing in every direction other than at themselves. We see what sin does. And I would say, going, just kind of thinking a little deeper about this in our marriages, like this is the first confrontation. Like they're, they're starting to kind of blame each other. Think about it. They're in a perfect garden, perfect setting. Everything's perfect. I doubt they had a big fight before this. So it's now we see that really it just serves as an illustration that this tension even between Adam and Eve shows that sin messes up everything. But even as they sit there and blame God and blame each other and blame the serpent, they run from God, they're hiding in fear. What does God do? What does God do? He delivers hope in the midst of judgment. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning as it points to the one that we are celebrating this time of year. So God first turns his attention to the serpent. Now there could be quite some discussion and probably a series on what this serpent exactly was. What is this creature that is mentioned of? When it comes down to it, we can't know exactly what this animal looked like. Rabbinic tradition says the animal was upright with legs before the curse, and that's plausible and, and possibly why he's referred to as a dragon in Revelation 12. It also says he's cursed to his belly, so okay, again, I don't know exactly what this thing looked like. Most simply interpreted, we could just think of this sort of as a snake like we kind of know now. But keep in mind, what it exactly looked like, I can't throw a picture up there. But it is an animal. It is an animal and it has no logical mind. It didn't make the decision to be Satan's partner in crime, is what I mean by that. The serpent is just a tool of Satan. Even so, God turns his attention to the serpent and curses him. The serpent is cursed above all livestock, says, meaning that even though it's true that every animal will feel the effects of the fall, for sure there's a curse there among all of creation. The serpent is the most cursed. In our Roman study, we're going to be right, we're right at the brink of chapter 8 when we get back there in January, and we read that all creation groans and suffers. All creation looks forward to the day where death and decay are no more. All creation looks forward to the day that it's set free from slavery to corruption. So all creation is affected by sin entering the world because now they will die and decay. But God selected the serpent to curse. And it might be in question in our minds, why would God do that? Well, there are some hints in scripture. For example, eating dust. This whole idea of eating dust, it's a common figure of speech in Scripture to mean total humiliation. It's used to mean total defeat. And it still means that today. I, I went to Urban Dictionary, which is basically a dictionary for old people that don't know how the young people talk these days. Um, and I don't know how reliable it is, but it tells me what the slang means, at least how we think about it. And we have that term, eat my dust. And what it says there is, it, when you say eat my dust, it means you're to be outperformed or outrun by someone, usually by a very wide margin. Well, that would be a great understatement that God outperforms Satan, but I think you get the idea. We can go to a way more reliable source, Scripture. In Psalm 72, it speaks of the enemies of the king licking the dust. In other words, the enemies have been brought low and they've been defeated. 
And in Isaiah 49, 23, licking the dust refers to total submission. And in Micah 7, when the nations see God's power, they will be in fear, crawling on their bellies, licking the dust like a serpent. Again, this is a symbol of total defeat. So God cursed the serpent so that we, I say, would have a constant reminder of Satan's total defeat. Snakes are really not that well liked among most people. <laughs> um, but regardless, when we see one crawling on the ground, it could be a reminder that Satan has been totally defeated. And it's interesting to mention that this will always be the case. In Isaiah 65, 25, we get a picture of what the new heavens and new earth will look like. We get that the, the lamb will lay with the lion and eat, or the, the wolves will lay with the lambs and the lion will eat straw. I mean, this marks a major change from what it is right now. Enemies will lie together. Lions will be vegetarians. This is weird. But the passage continues and says, dust shall be the serpent's food. In other words, the serpent's status doesn't change. Yeah, he can't harm you anymore if he was ever poisonous, but the symbol of total defeat is still there. This once crafty, crafty animal is brought low and serves as a permanent symbol of a conquered Satan. So this is the first part of the curse. There are really four parts to it, the serpent, Satan, man, and the woman. And up until this point, it makes sense that Satan thought, you know, I've really won now. I've got it. I've got this. I've outsmarted God. I mean, after all, he did just get the only two humans on earth to disobey God and obey him. His war with God and wanting to be above God, he must now think he's in control. He, after all, got a third of the angels to fall with him. Now, the only two humans on earth, he got to sin. There's nobody else. So he thought, I've just crushed humanity and destroyed God's plan. I'm speculating all of that, but it just makes sense because there's no one else there. After all, Adam and Eve did not have an undo button. It's not a video game. <laughs> but now God directs his attention towards Satan. And what's he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The word enmity means hostility or hatred or a state of deep-seated ill will. You get the idea. This is not a word that's applicable to say between an animal and a person. So God is speaking to Satan now who is morally responsible. He's a morally responsible being and the one behind the deception. Again, Satan must have thought he had just prevailed over the human race and got them to turn on God, but God says, not so fast, because this offspring, the offspring of the woman, will ultimately bring forth the one who is going to deliver the final blow, the final headshot. It's interesting to dig a little bit into the Hebrew language here, because the word bruise is used twice, and it's the same word, but it's meant in two different senses. When it, speaks of, when, when it speaks of the woman's offspring bruising Satan's head, it carries the idea of a crushing or compressing, a violent action is what is sought there. The NIV actually renders it, he shall crush your head. It's a good translation. But when it speaks of Satan being able to bruise the heel, it means to strike or to deliver, to deliver a blow. 
So we see that there's going to be hostility or an animosity or enmity against the offspring of the woman and Satan, but when we compare what each are able to do, one can crush, the other one can merely strike. So Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They've hid themselves behind the trees, and God pursued them saying, where are you? And now he continues and says it isn't over because there's going to be one who comes that will ultimately crush Satan. It's almost like as we're watching this play out, if you watch football at all, it's like what I'd call the reverse play. You know, quarterback takes the ball, hands it to this guy, he goes running that way, but then there's another guy and he hands it off and now he goes running this way. And so it's like, it seems like it's going one direction, but all of a sudden, boom, it's now over here. God has called the ultimate reverse, so to speak. Horrible analogy probably, but I hope you get where I'm going. It really looked like it was all going downhill, but God then steps in and reverses the course. So understand, this is the heart of why I selected this passage for the hope piece of our Advent, because this is the first gospel. This is the first time we see the gospel in scripture, and it's like on page three. If you like big words, for you nerds out there, it's proto-evangelum, the first gospel. The first gospel. It's here in Genesis 3.15. This is what everybody in the Old Testament had to hang their hope on that someone was coming that was going to crush the devil. That one day there'd be one who comes who would destroy the works of the devil. This is really what 1 John 3.8 says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In other words, the damage was done in the Garden of Eden and that probably seems so final in the eyes of Satan, but it can be reversed. Why? Because the sovereign God said, I will. God steps in. I will do this. There will be a divine action here because God has said so. It seems that Satan knew exactly what this meant too. He knew that if God was saying one was going to come that was going to crush his head, that was going to get the best of him, then he would do everything he could to try to disrupt this one from coming. The most obvious of this is at the birth of Jesus when Herod says, okay, all the boys around that are two and younger are going to be killed because, well, I don't want a king rising up against me. I would say Satan had a hand in that. We read about that in Matthew 2. Other Old Testament, the Old Testament is home to many times where Satan is trying to get rid of the line of Christ. Similar to Matthew 2 in Exodus 1, Pharaoh commands that you know, what if there's a Hebrew boy born, let him just die, or actually rather kill him, is what he told the midwives. In Esther 3, we read about Haman plotting against the Jews to kill them, because he was a little upset that he didn't get knelt to. And of course, on this side of the birth of Christ, we have the Holocaust. And even currently, there's a terrorist group, Hamas, that's seeking to eradicate the Jewish people. Why all this attack against the Jewish people? Why does there seem to be so many efforts to, at Jewish genocide? No matter what time in history we, we know, no matter what time it happens, we can be sure Satan hates what God loves. Of course, the Jews are God's chosen people, and we Christians have been grafted in, so we should not be surprised today when we hear of Jewish and Christian persecution. And before Christ was born, there's an extra motivation for Satan, as he knew this one that was coming that was going to crush him was to be a Jew, and if so, the Jews were wiped out, then he would have no chance of being born. 
and he did everything he could to prevent the birth of Christ. But remember, Satan's not the one in control. God is. God's in control. He is the one who is sovereign. And when he says, I will, you can bank on it. This is the gospel. This is the good news. God intervenes to take the problem that humanity has, which is sin. And what he says about enmity being put between humanity and Satan requires him to step in. What do I mean by that? Well, because now that sin has entered the world, humanity tends towards Satan. We in and of ourselves, apart from God, cannot choose God. Sin has conquered us. So for humanity to have hatred and animosity or enmity towards Satan, that means there must be a way to completely transform a human heart. There must be a way to redeem someone. There must be a way for our hearts to be regenerated and turned back towards God. And God says right here, I will do that. I'm going to make that possible. How, you may ask? Through the offspring of the woman. The word offspring here can be dug into a little bit. Some translations say seed. It's also fine to say that. And what makes it interesting is that this is the only place in Scripture where it mentions the seed of the woman. Now, I'm not going to go into biology, but I think we can figure out that that's not usually how that's talked about. Scripture mentions often the seed of man, but here it says seed of the woman. So no doubt this points forward to a virgin birth. When the angel visited Mary and said, you're going to become pregnant, and this is going to be different than any other pregnancy because it's going to be by the Holy Spirit. And that means it's going to happen without a human father, without the seed of man. As the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, that there will be a sign given that, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There was no human father to Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So Jesus, not having a human father, did not inherit the sin nature as does everyone else who's ever been born. This is the one offspring that can, did, and will crush Satan. And through this offspring, Jesus, we then can become children of God. Our hearts can be turned back to God. Look at this beautiful truth in Galatians 4. Oh, that's the wrong slide. Maybe the next one. There we go. Let's do that one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. You're an heir. So when it comes to this truth, when it comes to God changing things, he makes it possible now through the offspring of the woman now to change our hearts and to be adopted as sons of God. So when it comes to offspring, we can also ponder who is the offspring of Satan. Simple answer is basically anyone who's against God, more specifically, both John the baptizer and Jesus had some things to say about this. They're on the screen. And it says, John says this, But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Brood of vipers there means offspring of ven venomous, venomous, that's the word, snakes. 
Jesus doubles down on this. He says, you brood of vipers, in, in Matthew 12, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then further, Jesus again, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Here, Jesus calls them serpents and a brood of vipers, suggesting even more directly, I would say, that their true spiritual father is Satan. These religious hypocrites were Satan's children doing Satan's work. They were the, the religious elite of the day, but they rejected Christ and his work. So these are the offspring of Satan, anybody who is against God, simply put. And the uncomfortable truth is that all of us would be in that family tree had not God said, I will do something about it. That's where, that's where this hopeless message turns to hope. Because God said, I'm going to do it. Right at the beginning, the God of hope provides a way. He provides a way. He says, I'm going to do something. It took God stepping in to provide one, Jesus, who will overpower and crush the evil one. So the topic today is hope. We can have hope because he's a God that pursues. Where are you? He's a God that's already defeated Satan and has made it possible to reverse the curse that separates us from him. In this time of year, we celebrate the Savior who has been born to fulfill that promise. But the challenge for us is not just to recognize the hope that we have this time of year. The challenging part is not just to sit and be comfortable in our own salvation Church, we live in a, a dying world that we've already talked about a little bit. We could just flip on the TV and see the evil and the atrocities that take place everywhere. And everywhere we look, all we see is a reminder that the world needs the hope of Christ. They need the hope of a new beginning. They need the hope that Jesus Christ offers a chance to be redeemed and be brought back into a relationship with God and be completely transformed. And I want you to notice something else about the character of God here, just simply in the order that this all takes place in. Remember, I already said that God asked, where are you? He's pursuing, saying, where are you? And, and he said that after Adam sinned and, and God, God didn't need to know the location again, he just wanted to know, where are you spiritually? Where are you? It's a hint of God's pursuit. Now we have God announcing the gospel that ultimately Jesus will come and one day deliver the final blow to Satan. And all of that, the pursuit and the deliverance of the gospel message, all of that comes before God says anything to Adam and Eve about a curse on them. You can see up here, oh, that might be hard to see, sorry. But at the top in the red is the curse he delivers to Satan, saying that there will be a crushing redeemer. That's the gospel. The purple is what he delivers to Eve, and in the blue is what he delivers to Adam. And we don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but suffice to say that there are major consequences in disobeying God that plummeted humanity into sin. I've already said this. It's the most devastating scene in human history. He curses the serpent and he curses Satan, basically telling him he hadn't won. And after the gospel had been announced, after he gave the message of hope, after he told them that he will do something about it, then he moves on to the consequence. 
Do you see the character of a loving God? Do you see the character of a God who pursues even in the midst of the most wretched scene in history? It comes before they're kicked out of the garden. He delivers the greatest message of hope. And Adam and Eve may not even have been aware yet of all that they actually needed at this time. Certainly they know something's different because they're hiding now. And they were afraid. But were they, they may not even been aware of all that they needed. This is the hope that the world needs. And just like today, and just like maybe Adam and Eve, they, the world may not be aware of the consequences. Your neighbors may not be aware of the consequences living a life void of God. Your family members may not be aware. Your coworkers may not be aware. The world may not be aware they need the message of the gospel, but that doesn't change the truth that it's absolutely needed. There's no greater need because unawareness isn't an excuse. It's not like God is not like God waited a long time to intervene at the beginning. You see he was swift to come in. Within the curse lies hope. And this hope is the hope that the world needs, church. And do you know who can deliver that hope to the world? Who delivers that message of hope? I wish I just had a mirror, but you'd probably be blinded by all the lights up here. But the mirror would shine back to you. We are the messengers of that hope. We are not the ones who accomplish the hope. That's only in Christ. We are the messengers. I, that is what we need to know. We are the messengers of hope. We are not just to keep our hope and faith to ourselves. This is one of those times, in a sense, where re-gifting is like required. <laughs> you need to share the gift. You know, I was thinking about one of the movies that we watched th this time of year, and one of the ones that's kind of one of those fun movies we watch is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Now, there's like 90 different versions of it, but the one that we have and watch is from the year 2000 with Jim Carrey. And he's, he's got invited to the Who's Christmas party, right? And he's up there and he's going through his schedule. He's like, well, I just can't go. My schedule won't allow it. And he's like, four o'clock, I got to look in the mirror at self-pity. And 4.30, I got to do this. Five o'clock, I solve world hunger and tell no one. And then six, he keeps going on. It's like, it's like no, we, we kind of laugh. It's like, that's, that's kind of horribly funny. But it's like, you know, it's like this whole, I'm going to solve it and tell no one. I would say let's not be the Grinch. Let's tell everyone of the hope that we have. We have a much, a much greater solution to a much greater problem than physical hunger. We have the solution to man's greatest need, to be forgiven of sin and to be restored in right relationship with God. Our hope, or I hope that our, our lives don't reflect a tell no one sort of attitude. We have these blessed signs as I'm just looking across, seeing on the wall. It's reminding me that we are to tell people. We are to pray. We are to listen. We are to eat. We are to serve and share with people. We are to share people, share with people the hope that is within us. And if you feel convicted by me saying that, then you're joining me in my own thoughts as well because so do I. I think we all are guilty at times of sitting a little too comfortable with what we have and not sharing the greatest news ever. So church, we celebrate this time of year because Jesus was born. The Savior of the world made his not-so-grand entrance into the world, into a manger, and he fulfills what God had mentioned just a few chapters in our Bibles. And we know this. We cherish this. And we should. But I ask you, do you leave it boxed up too often? 
Do we put away the hope of Christmas with the manger scene? Do we tell no one? Or do we sense the urgency? I will conclude with one more thought, and it's not mine, it's from Charles Spurgeon. Go up on the screen here. He says, the great power of the serpent lies in the unpardoned sin. He cries, I've made you guilty. I brought you under the curse. No, say we, we are delivered from the curse and now are blessed. For it is written, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We are no longer guilty for who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Since Christ has justified, who is he that condemns? This is a swinging blow for the old dragon's head from which he will never recover. I love how he captures the truth of what the gospel does. It transforms. It calls us back into into the truth that we know, the hope that we know, because yes, Satan will stand and try to condemn, but if if the blood of Christ has covered that sin, then who can be condemned? No one. God sees that sin has been paid for in those of us who have come to Christ, who have called him Lord, who has trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we've repented of sin. And as we see the communion tables around this morning, we once again get to be reminded of that, that there's been a conquering victory, there has been a crushing blow, there has been a crushing violent action done against the enemy. Because God said, I will, and he did when Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a death he didn't deserve to pay for the sin of you and I. And so as we do this once again this morning, I encourage you to take a moment to reflect, to take a moment to spend, Scripture says, to examine ourselves as we do this. And, and if you're not in Christ, if you haven't come to that that relationship with him or repented and you don't really know what this whole gospel thing is yet, then I would say stay away from this communion table. But I would also say there is no better day than now to come to Jesus for the first time and then go and celebrate the victory that has been made and has been won over sin for you and I because of what Jesus Christ has done. So the worship team will come up here and play a few songs. And during that time is a time for you to reflect and then go to the tables that are around the room here. And you don't have to stay in your chairs. Man, you can lead your families to a different area. You can go with a friend or just by yourself. Communion is something between you and God that the church gets to do in remembrance of the victory that is won and the ultimate hope that we have. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I do thank you for the hope that we have. And I thank you that it's, that it's all over scripture. <laughs> you are a God of hope because you've put it there right at the beginning, even in the midst of the most devastating scene, the curse, sin coming into the world. God, I thank you that you've made a way. An all-sufficient, all-sufficient one who has gone to the cross on our behalf, that you've made a way to deal with our greatest need, our greatest problem, which is sin that separates us from a holy God, that separates us from you. And without Jesus, we would still be caught in that. So God, I pray that we would celebrate this morning as we go to the tables once again and remember all that has been done for us. And Lord, for those here that may not know you, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts as only you can do. I can't work in hearts. No one can work in hearts but you. So I pray you would draw 
your people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.